Hi, hello, watchmans, and welcome to another edition of the Real Time Show with me, your friendly neighborhood watchmaker, Rob Nuts. Today, I am joined by my co-host Alan Ben Joseph, who has been mining through the mailbag to find the best questions that our listeners have asked in these past couple of weeks. Alan, which questions have piqued your interest, and where should we start the show today? I wanted to say thank you as well to our uh, friends and fans and newly found contributors because they're actually amazing questions. Since you are the host and editor, Rob, the honor is yours. And I suggest we just jump in because this is what this show is about. It's real talk, real topics, real answers about everything time, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. (laughs) I found a really good one to start with, actually. It's largely because of where the guy that's asked it is from. He's from a place in America called Dublin, Ohio. His name's Jonathan. Hi, Jonathan. Thanks for getting in touch. And weirdly, I was born in Dublin, but have also visited and worked in Dublin, Ohio. This is a question that I think we should both address. So I'll let you have a go at it first. The question is from Jonathan. I want to buy my first watch. What would you gentlemen recommend? How polite is that? Very much so. It's as if he's from Dublin uh, on, on, in Europe instead of the US. Um, thank you so, so much for that, John. Awesome question. I guess w- when I get this uh, question asked, I always counter with questions, which is rude because my mom taught me never to answer a question with a question. But whenever I give advice, I want it to be as personal as possible because that's what watches are. And I, I guess that's the beauty of watches. There's so many out there. And they can underline your identity and your style. I always tell people, enjoy the journey up until purchasing the watch. So have fun. You could obviously go into a store physically or digitally and just pull the trigger immediately. But you can also acquire a lot of info. I usually recommend people if you don't need it for sports and there are no heavy shocks involved, go for mechanical which can be either hand-wound or automatic. And you can have amazing watches at any price point, even a Swatch System 51, right? Uh, Let's say $200, $300, euro, pound. Nowadays, with this currency exchange is going up and down like a a ping pong uh, game, it's almost the same. So it depends on what you seek in a watch, what you expect from a watch in precision, in quality, in feel and touch, I think that's very important. So in that sense, although I love e-com and we pioneered a lot in e-com, I love to touch the watches before I buy them. So have them in my hands, um, really, really play with them as if they're a pebble in my hands and then put them on my wrist. If your budget is, let's say, below a 1000 I highly recommend to go towards Tissot, Longines, Hamilton if you're from the U.S., Um, amazing American brand with Swiss quality, but American roots. I love the cakey field mechanical watch. But for example, I love Timex watches. Also, again, if you're in the US, I guess that might resonate with you as a brand. It's less known in Europe. I mentioned Swatch already, which I always loved. If you want to go the digital route and you don't want a connected watch or a smart watch, I highly recommend G-Shocks. They make time-only watches, they make digital-only watches, they make the both options available. So I guess I want to leave it at that. I don't want to make it a monologue. So Rob, uh, the honor is yours. So you touched on 
probably the most important aspect that's missing from this question, and that is budget. Because if you've got unlimited funds, then the answer could be very different indeed, because I might point you in the direction of a new independent brand, something quite artisanal, something that extols the virtues of true watchmaking. But if we're assuming that this is somebody that's getting into the watchmaking game for the first time and they want to buy something of, you know, significant money, but not crazy, crazy amounts. I think that your choices that you picked from the Swatch Group, those three brands, Longines, Hamilton, Tissot, are all very good. And uh, it's really hard to beat the quality that they offer for the price point that they're at because of the Swatch Group's enormous advantages when it comes to economy of scale. Mm -hmm. I think that the PRX from Tissot is a really nice watch. It ticks a lot of boxes for the zeitgeist. It's cool. It's got an integrated bracelet. It's very on trend and it costs a few hundred euros, dollars or pounds, as you said, um, which is a strange uh, thing to find ourselves saying, but there you go. I would also like to say in a similar way to you, answer the question with a question. Your mother will slap me across the wrist, I'm sure. But <laughs> I would say, why do you want to watch? What does watchmaking mean to you? Or what do you think it might mean to you? And then to focus on that budget question. Because a lot of my friends that come into watch collecting now, they want to buy an investment piece. And this, I'm allergic to this. I, I say, no, 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 don't, don't buy a watch because you think you're going to make money on it. Don't even buy a watch because you are convinced it will hold its value. Never spend more than you can afford to lose on a watch and make an emotional investment, not a financial one. That's the first thing I say whenever somebody comes to me with this question, and obviously they do quite frequently. I might recommend a new brand from Norway called Straum. That's S-T-R-A-U-M. You can find them on Instagram. They've got a very nice website, actually. This is a small independent brand from Norway that makes very ambitiously designed watches created with smart design decisions behind the build process. So you get a lot of quality for your money considering they don't have the same advantages as much bigger brands. And the style is like nothing else really, I have to say. So if you're into the kind of avant-garde perhaps, and you want to like try something a little bit different, that would be my specific nod for your first watch in watchmaking. But to be honest, as you said, going with one of the entry-level Swatch Group brands is something that just can't go wrong. Thank you for that. And I, I guess we should maybe categorize this question as an uh, entry watch or getting known with the art of collecting wristwatches. And maybe if one of the episodes in the future, we don't have enough questions, which I don't think that will happen, but we could maybe segmentize this question and do it for every price bracket. That could be fun, maybe. I mean, that could be a whole show in itself and something yeah. I'd love to do and something... No, I really think that there needs to be more conversations like that because the answer does change so much on the customer and their means. And um, yeah, let's definitely do that. And also, I always ask, what do you have already? Because I guess that in your decision tree, in your decision making, it's very important. What do you have? Do you have a sports watch? Do you want a dress watch? Do you have a black color? Do you want to go for a light color? So that also affects the decision and my advice. So we hope that answers your question, Jonathan. Alon, what's next? Dig around in the mailbag and find something Find something tasty. Let me see. Let me see. So we have Chris from your hometown, Manchester. He asked us, what is meant by manufacture caliber? Huh. Well, I'll try and uh, figure out which Chris this could be later on. 
he has this on your Instagram profile, I, I guess. Uh, yeah. So it's in a, in a DM. I got this in a DM. Okay. So, Rob, would you take this one first? Uh, yeah, sure. Um, so, a manufacturer caliber is uh, another term, really, for in-house caliber. It means that it has been made by the company that says they made it. So there's a few different classifications of caliber, and that's another word for movement, the engine that drives the watch in the industry. And you will find uh, manufacture, in-house, proprietary, and I don't know, off-the-shelf or bought-in movements uh, quoted frequently. So when a movement is off the shelf. It means it's been made by a movement manufacturer that manufactures only movements and generally doesn't make watches of their own and sells movements to brands so they can create their watches. So this is a company like ETA, like Soprod, like Salita, like Le Jupere, for example. And they have a long list of um, effectively uh, base movements, which can be bought. Sometimes they can be uh, customized for brands as well and sold to them directly. Now, if that customization goes to a point at which the movement becomes something that is exclusive to the brand that's buying it, it's known as a proprietary caliber. Now, a lot of movements that are, shall we say, marketed as manufacture or in-house calibers are actually proprietary calibers. And there have been scandals in the past that I'm sure Alon remembers as well, when brands have erroneously claimed that they have an, an in-house or manufacture caliber when in fact it's proprietary. The top of the tree is in-house or manufacture, and that means that the brand is making the movement or at least the vast majority of its components themselves. Very, very few brands make everything in a watch. Mostly jewels and screws and hairsprings are outsourced, but there are exceptions to that rule. What is your stance on Manufacture in general, is it important for you when you buy watches that they have the in-house caliber or don't you care? And I think that's important to mention also. The Swiss industry was never built up in creating your own caliber. The beauty of it all was that everybody made components, subcontractors, and they were assembled at the watch manufacturer. It's, it's relatively new. And as Rob said, there are hardly any brands out there that make everything from A to Z, so 100% in-house. And regarding the scandals, I think we can do a whole episode about that. And what is the definition of manufacturing on? I think we should leave it for now in this episode, but I think it's an interesting one to touch upon in the future, Rob. Well, it, it has a different answer depending on where you're talking about, because the rules of what constitutes in-house are different for Germany and for Switzerland, and I suppose even for China or Japan. I, I don't know the Far Eastern ones at the moment, but we should definitely dig into that. Interesting one. I think that's a good one. I think that's for, for a, a future episode. So to answer my question for you, when you buy watches, is it important for you? To have an in-house calendar? <laughs> you know, I, I always hate being asked this question because obviously I'm a watchmaker and you would expect that the answer would be yes, the movement is always what I buy watches for, but the God's honest truth is no, not at all, actually. I oftentimes find myself favoring very bog standard off the shelf calibers because of the ease of servicing them and the the maintenance that you can rely upon and there's very little that goes wrong with these tried and tested tractor calibers like an ETA 2824 for example or a Salita 200 series that they're, they're pretty solid they're pretty robust and I have as of recent years I've delved into more extravagant movements 
in my collection that I have bought specifically for the movements. Like I have a very nice Speedmaster Mark IV with a, a central minute chronograph mechanism, which is probably my favorite movement in my collection. And I was attracted to that watch because of how it worked. I like the aesthetics as well, but it was how it worked that really got me. I have another nice Speedmaster and Mark 40, which I picked up in a trade, and that's got a great little caliber in it. It's a little modular caliber with um, a dial side modification that allows the day, the date, the month to be shown in addition to a chronograph mechanism with a 24-hour indicator. It's got all sorts going on, and it's teeny-weeny. It's under 40 millimeters, so Mm -hmm. it, it wears like a dream. But to answer your question directly, no, it doesn't matter to me. I'm not a movement snob, and I see a great many benefits to basic calibers. Thank you for that. And the funny thing is, nine out of 10 watchmakers will give the same answer. Yeah, we're a funny breed, that's for sure. Okay, next question. <laughs> next question, I've got one. This one came from email, so it's good to see people are using those emails. Remember, it's either Rob or Alon at therealtime.show. This is from David R. in Washington, D.C. I'm pretty sure I know what that R stands for, but I won't reveal it for uh, privacy reasons. And he asks us both, is Rolex really the best? Ooh, that's the $1 million question. <laughs> <laughs> So, who goes first? Uh, go on, you go first. I'm sick of the sound of my own voice already. Okay, so this is a popular question as well. And I can go the PC route, politically correct route. But since this is the, the real talk about everything time with real answers, is Rolex the best? In what they do, they are the best. Yes, they are. Um, And what is it that they do? They make the best two watches they possibly can make. And nowadays also dress watches and I call it all-round watches that you could wear uh, with a suit, casual, poolside, beachside, and if you need to slap on a tux as well. Um, But if we... Dig deeper. Why? Rolex always said we want to make the best watches out there. What is best today? It's the quality and the finish of obviously everything manufactured, which can be caliber, dials, cases, bracelets, etc. Glass, hands, indexes. Um, but it's also how precise is the movement, right? Because when we talk about being the best, it's about timekeeping. And timekeeping is as precise as possible, so as little as possible deviation compared to an atomic clock per day. And does it need longer intervals for maintenance? In this sense, I hardly know any other product out there that does both as good as Rolex. And their philosophy is now more 100 years plus to push the envelope. Evolutions never revolutions always improve with baby steps and they keep on doing that and pushing the envelope some people might say they're the best in rest values i guess that is true as well rob yeah unfortunately yeah some might think they are pretentious by choosing a crown as their logo but you could flip the story and say hey if that's our dna we want to be the best so that shows a philosophy, a DNA. So does it mean they're the best? The rest is S-H-I-T. I don't know if we 
can do that on the show, Rob. But if we would say Rolex is the best and the rest is poor, that's not true either. And a counter question will often get, yeah, but Patek Philippe is better. I think they're in a different ball game within the game of watchmaking. Yeah, okay. I mean, that's it, isn't it? That's exactly the point. It's qualifying that question. And just like the previous questions, we could break down all of the different facets of a brand and do an hour or two hours or three hours on discussing what Rolex is really good at and what it has done better than anybody else in its history. So I'm going to I'm gonna set my stall out in a mildly controversial manner and just answer this question with no. Rolex is not the best mm-hmm. at most things, but it is easily the best at marketing. And it has been it has been for a long time. So this isn't something new. So when people start off in watchmaking, let's say a new company comes along and let's say the people finding it aren't actually watch people. They just think, hey, I can crack that industry. Obviously, I can make a watch. How hard can it be? They look at Rolex and they go, okay, how do we do what Rolex did? And the answer is you can't because you had to be there at every pivot point in the history of watchmaking and be on the front line of development in those days to establish the long, genuine heritage that Rolex has. So in some ways, Rolex has been the best at many points during its history. It has been the best sports watch for quite some time. It was the first automatic winding waterproof watch with a screwed iron crown. You know, nowadays we take the kind of things that made Rolex the best for granted because everybody's looked at that and they've copied them from a product mm-hmm. perspective. So there are myriad options at far more accessible prices and pieces that are themselves actually accessible that do the same thing as the Rolex product. What you can't fake is that heritage. So they have maybe the best heritage and they have the best marketing department behind it. I mean, Hans Wilsdorf, the founder of Rolex, um, who founded the company in 1905 in London, had a watch hanging around uh, Mercedes Gleitscher's neck. She was a channel swimmer, an amazing swimmer. And he put a Rolex on a chain and he hung it around her neck and she swam across the channel and came out on the other side and the watch was still running, waterproof, no damage to it whatsoever. And he did this years and years and years and years and years before anybody else would have thought to market a watch in that way as this indestructible item. And he did it so fantastically well. That resonates down the ages. They still have that newspaper cutting in their press pack to show like how long Rolex has been doing this. That That's almost 100 years ago that article came out. That's just crazy provenance. So they're the best at that, absolutely. But nowadays, Rolex uh, is not the best option if you want to buy a watch because you can't get one from most places. It's not exactly bad value for money because as you said the quality is superb the finishing is superb the movements are excellent runners they can withstand shock they're anti-magnetic they go for years without any kind of problem and yeah ultimately maybe the extra money you pay for a rolex might save you a few quid in service costs because they're incredibly reliable but there are tons of other options Tons of other options. Like you get people like splitting off into pretty passionate factions within the industry, often putting a brand like, say, Omega directly against Rolex. And the Rolex faction hates the idea that Omega is compared to Rolex because they see a huge gulf in class and quality. And maybe on case finishing, there is a noticeable gulf. But in every other way, really, in terms of design, in terms of at least recent provenance of the last 50 or 60 years, Omega is right there with Rolex. And the watches are, for now at least, 
considerably more affordable, considerably more accessible. So there are alternatives so close to Rolex and better than it in some tangible ways, I think. It's impossible to say it is the best at anything other than marketing. I will give it marketing hands down. I think it is just unbelievable. It is a brand beyond all brands. It doesn't behave like a watchmaking brand at all. It's a phenomenon. So yeah, it's the best phenomenon in watchmaking, but it doesn't mean it's the best watchmaking brand or the best watches. Spot on. And we can also dedicate a whole episode and more about that. So Rob, should we move on? Yeah, yeah. I've got a good question for you because uh, I, I can't answer this as well as you can. I know that. So I'm going to leave it entirely to you. And it's from Richard in Norwich in England. And he says, and this is perfect for you, why should I buy at an authorized dealer? Interesting one. Uh, I, I'm using this as well. To make a disclaimer that on this show, it's me as a private person. And whatever my links are with the watchmaking industry do not matter when I speak. So I speak freely as a watch enthusiast. So why an AD? Um, First and foremost, I think, and I'm not objective here because I'm one, but one that is a... WIS, a watch nerd, and always treats people like I want to be treated. So that means I want to have passion, knowledge, and service. That's what I look in whatever I buy, if I buy quality products or actually any retail experience. It doesn't matter if I go to the supermarket or buy a couch or a car or whatever. So I guess that's why you go to an AD. And nowadays, in a world where everything verticalizes, and also the watch industry, as a lot of brands are going DTC, direct to consumer, is the ADs are almost always multi-brand retailers. So you have the option to compare. Um, that becomes less and less and less. Um, and I guess that summarizes it. I guess if I were to buy from an AD, what I would feel was that I had support if i needed anything like i I have a physical touch point i can go to i can hand in my watch send it off for service they can take care of all that for me and that makes me feel very comfortable when you're making a kind of investment that we're talking about here i i guess that can be done also in a mono brand but usually ad's are more personal they are often family-owned family run not always but often and they care more you're, you as a consumer are not a number in um, uh, these gigantic monobrand boutiques. Yesterday, I was walking through the, uh, my, my neighborhood, which is the, the high, high street where all the big names are. And still now, post-COVID, the huge queues in front of the big names, I'm talking about Hermes, Dior, Chanel, and Cartier. So you know that the minimum price there is a few thousand euros, dollars, whatever, and you need to queue up with 20, 30 people in front of you standing in the rain outside, and then there is a host at the door deciding if you're able to enter or not, like it's a nightclub or something. So that for me is an antithesis on high-end retail. And and that often I don't think you'll find at ADs, authorized dealers. That's what AD stands for. Very nice. So uh, I should definitely buy from an ad next time i want to buy a watch it's a nice experience as well actually when you get over the threshold i have been intimidated in the past 
uh, walking into retail, especially more old-fashioned retailers that turned out to be absolutely lovely when you got inside yeah. and when you started yeah. talking to somebody. But I can imagine like this next generation a little bit reticent to maybe like walk up to a door with a security guard and go through yeah. it and yeah. be observed, you know. But uh, yeah, good good point, and and that's something that give them a chance because due to security they're big barriers but we don't have a security guard at the door because i think that's very personal but but give them a chance and, and and if you can pick in whatever town you are at or visiting try to find the the the, the family owned the family run ones and give them a chance um and you'll be surprised Nice. Good answer from the heart as well. Very nice. I have a question here, which I think is posed to both of us, came into my email inbox from Lucy in London. And she says, what is a Holy Trinity brand and do they still exist? So uh, I'm going to guess that Lucy's heard quite a bit about Holy Trinity brands being bandied around, but isn't quite sure what they are or whether they are still operational. You want to take this one from the top? Sure. Um, so personally, I don't like the term. There is no objective Holy Trinity in watchmaking. Often, or almost always, it is subjective and almost always Rolex and Patek are in there. And the third one in the Trinity is a sliding scale. AP, Adam Alpiquet, recently came in there a lot. Back in the day, I think Vacheron Constant was in there. Even before that, Jejar Le Coultre, JLC, was in there, but it seems they fell off their throne a bit. Um, my personal opinion, I can go again the PC route, so politically correct, and, 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 and say what I think. Um, but we are not doing that in this show. So, for me, my holy trinity is uh, Patek Philippe, Rolex, and I think who needs to be in there is Vachon Constantin. And why do I think that? I think it's about brands that have a long-term vision, pursue the utmost quality, and then the odd one in my Holy Trinity is actually Rolex because for me, the most important thing is when they push the envelope means in innovation. So making the grand complication. And if I take that term, Rolex actually doesn't belong there. And I could substitute it either by Lange Serna. Actually, Jejal Couture should be up there. A rather, a few new indies, independent watchmakers could be up there, but they simply don't have the track record. And all these brands we're talking about are more than a century old. Why Rolex is up there? Because they have that respect and desirability in the market. But in sense of philosophy, they do belong there. So that's my opinion. To answer Lucy's question, which is actually a very good one. So what makes a Trinity brand? I think that people use that term when they mean the most desirable watch brands but that's not my definition so it's very subjective and i'm very curious rob what your definition of a holy trinity brand is <laughs> and what three brands do you put up there well i don't think it's subjective at all i uh i've never heard somebody uh put anything other than 
Patek, Vacheron, and Odomapige in the Holy Trinity. And it's interesting that you sort of have taken it and, well, I would say modified it, but I don't know, maybe I've just been uh, living in an echo chamber all this time. But no, I, I always believed that it was just a uh, deferential way to refer to those three masters that had in their day perhaps the three most iconic uh, sports watches of all time. We had the Nautilus from Patek and the Royal Oak from Audemars Piguet and the overseas preceded by the far more impressive 222, in my opinion, from Vacheron. And I always had those three locked into that role because what I've done in recent times is hijacked the term Holy Trinity and tried to uh, define the modern Holy Trinity of steel sports watches. And in that modern Holy Trinity, I have Chapek with the Antarctique, Moser with the Streamliner, and Bulgari with the Octo Finissimo. Now, I know the best execution of the Octo Finissimo is the one you wear, the all-titanium one, which doesn't fit with the steel sports watch category. But my favorite is actually the steel one, because I prefer the little bit of extra thickness you get in the steel. And I think... You like a bit of bling-bling. I don't like a bit of bling-bling at all. That's ridiculous. <laughs> That's a, that's a slanderous, unbelievable thing to say. No, 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 no. I just like the robustness of it because that your titanium Bulgari, which, I mean, let's face it, is an absolute masterpiece of design. It terrifies me because it's so thin on the wrist. Like the bracelet is as thick as the watch. It's nuts. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's remarkable. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. It's remarkable. Yeah. But yeah. the design is what I'm preaching. I don't even love the Streamliner personally. I think the bracelet is sent from heaven, but yeah. I, I, I'm not sure I would wear it i adore the chepek antarctic as you know i wear one most days yeah. and i think it's the best thing since the nautilus really i want to yeah. jump in because um having a lot of fun and this promises to be a very interesting series of episodes because we're giving multifaceted answers so i'm going to rebuttal in a reverse chronological order of what you said bro i'm with you 100 on the holy trinity of Steel sports watches with integrated bracelets. So your Neo Holy Trinity, I'm with you 100%. Spot on, 100%. But if we go back to the OG Holy Trinity, which is also vague because we don't even know when in watchmaking that term was being used for the first time. But I've definitely heard a lot of people mixing up the Holy Trinity, but I've never heard Anybody not use Patek or Rolex? I think the AP came in there only the last decade. When the Royal Oak became that sought after, the moment the aftermarket price for a Royal Oak, call it the basic one, the slim version, the Ultra 10, the 39mm, or even the 41, became higher in aftermarket values than retail, that's the moment when people put them up there. I don't think that the classification of Holy Trinity became because these three brands make the ultimate steel sport watches. I think they came in there. Either they put AP there because they're family-owned. The, these three are family-owned and independent, which Vacheron is not anymore. And Gégère Lecoultre isn't anymore. But I think that the old term of Holy Trinity came from the fact of who makes the most complicated watches. So I don't think back in the day, Rolex was in there. So it depends on what the definition is, right? 
Well, I think there's also a, a nice symmetry between those three brands, between AP, VC, and PP. That was weird. I never said that before in my life. But between <laughs> be, between uh, those... It that, sounded, <laughs> that sounded like cursing in, in, in the Scandinavian language. Yeah, it did, didn't it? And it also sounds yeah. much much less luxurious when you refer to it as PP. Yeah. Anyway, they, uh, they all seem to be on the same level to me. I guess Rolex jars, because like I said before in my somewhat overly impassioned answer about is Rolex the best or not. Rolex to me doesn't really fit in the general analysis of the watchmaking industry. It's its own animal. It's its own beast. And it's in some ways it's bigger than Patek Philippe. Yeah. In yeah. some ways. And, and, and I guess also why people start using that term is when watch auctions were the thermometer of the watchmaking industry and values, which today, obviously that has been, taken over by the Chrono 24s of this world and the internet. I guess the, the, the record-breaking brands were put in the Holy Trinity. I guess. But I'm actually very curious to hear from our listeners what they think is the term of a Holy Trinity and what their Holy Trinity is. I'm not sure we've done Lucy many favors here, to be honest. We may have asked, <laughs> we may have asked more questions than, uh, than we've answered there. But yeah, by all means, guys, like, do reach out to us and let us know what your experience of the term Holy Trinity is, whether you have a personal definition, whether you believe it to be objective, and if so, which brands you believe comprise it. And uh, we'll, we'll dice it up further down the line because I have less of an idea of what it is now than I did when I started the show. So thanks. Thanks, Alam. All right. Well. So... Thank you also, uh, Lucy and Rob, for your uh, input. It's I actually like that we are not uh, on the same page all the time. But I do need to steal that Antarctic off your wrist the next time uh, we sit together. Question for you, Rob. And this is actually very interesting. Um, this was sent in from Robert, a different Robert. <laughs> actually from Saxony. Oh, no. <laughs> um, he asks, are German watches as good as Swiss? And for those that don't know Rob or me that well, we both are very passionate about Glashütte, the watchmaking mecca of Germany, especially the brand Nomos, because that's where we met each other. Rob was selling the Nomos watches to me, I think about seven years ago. Mm -hmm. And Rob actually lives most of the time when he's not traveling all the time, in Germany. So, Rob, are German watches as good as Swiss? Well, this is, um, this is funny. I mean, I live in Saxony. My name is Robert, although nobody but my mother or furious girlfriend calls me by it. And uh, it, it's a good question um, because it's the sort of one that I, I, I like to ask myself and answer quietly with a resounding uh, yes. Not only are German watches as good as Swiss, I maybe unsurprisingly, actually prefer them. And um, my favorite brand, I, I suppose, if you put me on the spot, is actually A. Langertenzoner, also in Glasseter, across the road from Nomos, which I adore and, as you said, uh, worked for for a few years and have many pieces from in my collection. I think I have seven Nomos watches now, which is uh, Six more than I can wear at once, um, which <laughs> causes some problems because I feel quite emotionally attached. Five more. Five, five more, yeah. I, you know, I've tried double wristing, I really have, but there's something about the, the right wrist that just, it, it actually is very uncomfortable for me. But yeah, I suppose I could get away with something small and lightweight like a Tangenta or a Club, and I have both of those, so I could try that. 
okay, are German watches as good as Swiss? I say, well, yes. Okay, there's there's nothing about the standards of German watchmaking that are in any way lower than the standards of Swiss watchmaking. Of course, it comes down to the brands that you're talking about. But if we take the very top levels, let's take Langer and Zona and Patek Philippe and just put them next to one another. I think that's a pretty fair comparison, would you not say? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I would say. I would say that uh, horologically, they are comparable. Uh, their complications also are comparable. The level of finishing, I, I personally would give the edge to Langer here, which may be controversial, but I am in love with the German silver movements, the use of screw down gold chatons, the swan neck regulators, the three quarter plates, which covers the majority of the movement, which is typical for German watches. It's, it's actually the most identifiable trait of German watch movement architecture. That to me, finished with Glasser to ribbing, which is basically the same as Geneva striping or Geneva waves, but with a different name, is just heavenly. And uh, I would love to see more like, or some Langer watches in steel cases, because I believe that is more German than the precious metals that the Richemont group that owns Langer and Zona keeps them bound to these days. Mm-hmm. Uh, but beyond that, there is, uh, there is nothing I prefer about Patek to Langer. I would definitely take a Langer over a Patek any day of the week. And if you step down like to the price point of Namos, for example, which runs from around 1100 euros, I think is the entry point with the Club 36 up to about 4,600 for the Veltzite in steel. And then all the way up to around, I guess, 12 or 13. I'm not sure what the Lambda looks are these days in gold, but that's a, a great ambassador for the German method to put up against any Swiss brand in the same price point. To look at the mechanics of the Namos watches, which are now all in-house, uh, which is a remarkable achievement given the fact the brand was only founded in 1990 and didn't release its first watches until 1992. It's uh, a leader in design. It's known for its Bauhaus-inspired styles, but in recent years it has taken some more ambitious steps away from that to try new things with the Autobahn model. And some people would say that the Veltzite also is not particularly Bauhaus, which is fair enough because it is... Uh, a little more stylized than perhaps it needs to be, especially in the lug region. But there's a lot of exciting things going on in German watchmaking. There are far fewer brands in Germany than there are in Switzerland, of course, and far fewer of note. But the ones that are pushing the envelope as Nomos is and as Langer continues to are absolutely stunning and deserve attention. And for my money, actually outpunch their Swiss corollaries. And just to show that I'm not just a two-brand man, I bought... Just a few days ago, a Glasseter Original 1970s chronograph with the vibing orange dial. Proud of you. You're rocking our national colors. Of course. Good on you. Good on you. <laughs> um, amazing. Thank you for that. My pleasure. You know, I'm, you know, I'm very passionate about German watches. I love the, the architecture that was established by Ferdinand Adolf Langer when he first came to Glasseter to establish watchmaking as an uh, industry to replace the previous industry of the area, which was silver mining, would you believe? And ever since, the three-quarter plate has been an identifiable trait of German watches, and long may it remain. Amen. So, I got a good question here. Uh, this comes from Andreas in Grenchen in Switzerland. That's a big watchmaking town as well, so there's obviously, uh, an, obviously a collector over there because he's got his finger on the pulse quite clearly. His question is, why are the prices of watches increasing so fast and we could add to that decreasing again so maybe we should uh, add to that where's the volatility coming from a good question uh, andreas do you want to take it first well I'll, I'll have a crack at it um because i keep putting you on the spot so it's only fair that i try and answer on the fly 
I would say that in recent years, especially throughout the pandemic, although the first months of it were a little bit wobbly, the last two years of uh, restrictions saw certain portions of the watch industry explode in terms of popularity and price. And I think it was because of all the places one could put their money during that time, if one was lucky enough to have some significant money to invest, watches seemed like a pretty safe bet. And that bore out to be true until very recently when, as perhaps we see ourselves coming out of the pandemic and travel restrictions easing and confidence in markets, <laughs> every market but the UK by the looks of things, were soaring a little higher. People are uh, putting their money elsewhere. I think it comes down to availability and scarcity in a lot of cases. I mean, not every single watch brand is going through the roof in terms of resale prices, because we're mostly talking here, I think, about gray market prices. Retail prices haven't exploded um, notably for quite some time. So yeah, I'd, I'd say that people are just very aware of the fact that these items that are sought after are returning huge profits on investment and have done for a few years now. Uh, it's largely driven by the Rolex phenomenon, but then because people were pushed away from Rolex due to their scarcity, whether it's artificial or otherwise, and into the arms of independent brands, their prices also went up and then people couldn't afford those. And so they moved on elsewhere. And we've seen some huge success stories throughout this period, like the Chepek Antarctic, which of course I have been thoroughly involved with since its launch. And uh, I'm sure we'll see a few more of those. Uh, before everybody manages to get a Rolex Explorer on their wrist. What do you think? I, I agree with everything you said. There was a lot of money during COVID. We didn't really globally see demise in income and no outlet in regular ways to spend it. So that went to luxury. Then, because interests were so low, people were seeking other asset classes to put their money in. And I want to make a strong disclaimer that I do not believe watches are or should be an asset class. They're first and foremost mechanical marvels of art, and they relatively retain their value on average well. A lot of people blame the crypto billionaires that they created a sharp increase in values of, of price increases, not values of price increases. That is only a small part of it. Something that's maybe less noticeable and less acute, is there is more appreciation for watchmaking. And that comes because of many reasons, one of which is we hear a lot of negative things about Instagram, but Instagram made things more visible and, and more photogenic. So there's more watchmaking. And the younger generations actually appreciate putting something on their wrists because of smartwatches. So making them wear something on their wrist, like a smartwatch, instead of nothing, makes them appreciate having time on their wrist instead of in the palm of their hands by looking at a smartphone. And when they grow up a bit, they actually are fed up with all these annoying notification and buzzing and vibrating and batteries that don't last a full day. And they want cleaner designs so they tend to time only lesser designs also one of the reasons why nomos is doing also so well um so i think it's a myriad of reasons um but i think the underlying one which is less noticeable there is simply more appreciation for watchmaking which makes me very happy actually as a watch nerd 
that's good to hear. That's a very optimistic end to that answer. And thank you for it. It's always interesting to hear your take on this part of the industry, especially because, of course, you're right up there on the front line when it comes to prices of things. Talking of things people were once very happy to pay a lot of money for, but now seem to be a little less sure of. The next question, um, unfortunately, it's anonymous, this one. We don't know who it's from, but uh, it could be someone from the brand hoping for some free market research for all I know. But the question is, and I'll ask you because I know you're a big fan of the brand and I'm, I'm a little bit more removed from it, but what happened to GG La Culture? Why did they lose their mojo? <laughs> that's actually the question <laughs> so it's probably not from the marketing department of uh, jlc but yeah why did they lose their mojo well a uh, good question i actually love the brand and i've always loved the brand ever since i'm a kid and why i love germanic watch design is because it's the less is more rule clean designs i actually do love patek philippe and own their watches I still don't own a Lange Cerner, which is very high on my wrist list. So slash my wrist list. My wife actually wants to buy one. I think what you forgot to mention, Rob, is the, the symmetry in design. Um, and, and, and I think for those that are not very familiar with European culture, although we're a very small continent, they're very close to each other. It's a world of difference between the southern parts of Switzerland, which are more Frenchy, and the northern parts of Switzerland, where they speak speak Swiss-Deutsch and are more Germanic-German, um, the design styles and codes are different. And I think that's the big difference why you like Lange and Sona more. I like both equally. Uh, for me, a Lange one is, is the pinnacle. If you like golden ratios, um, the, the lines there are, are mind-blowing. Um, and and I, that translates to Jejala culture because it seems there, although there's um, uh, in Les Sentiers, and it's more French than Germanic. They've they're always been very clean and very much about quality. Um, they were the first to test their watches and movements for a thousand hours, the master control. Um, although the Atmos clock is not theirs, because originally it's a Reuter clock. And uh, Le Coultre merged with Gijard. So it's a bit of a mishmash in their DNA and their history. But I love the fact that they pursue utmost quality. It's a never shouty design. And they push the envelope on, on technicality. You and I both like Art Deco and Bauhaus. So how can you not love a reversal? Master Controls, they were known for the most thin calibers. And almost all major watch brands used Gijala Ultra calibers. Think about the Royal Oak that we talk so much about. I used to own one and our mutual friend actually purchased it off my wrist, which I regret selling to him back in uh, the early 2000s, had the Gijala culture movement. IWC watches had Gijala culture movements, etc., etc. Today, I think they, I kind of think they lost their mojo a bit. Um, it seems they're all over the place. I think they're modernizing their designs a bit, but it's simply not spot on. I think they're hanging too long in their retro vibe. A critical note from my end to watchmakers is, guys, come on, innovate again. Don't stick in those neo-vintage, retro-inspired watches and just diving into your archives and bringing back old models. And, and I guess there's one brand who totally 
is afloat because of one model, which is Adam Piquet with the Royal Oak, right? They're all almost synonymous to each other. So Royal Oak is almost the brand. I think that Jejala culture never hinged on the reversal. But I think because the other collections diminished a bit, it seems a one-trick pony now with the reversal. Yeah. And if you don't like rectangular watches, yeah. then suddenly you've written off the brand as a consumer, as a buyer. And that's a danger. I mean, mm. their, 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 their pedigree is, is, is reversal, master controls, a memo fox, of course. I mean, come on, alarm watches. How amazing is that? Tourbillons, uh, 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 grand complications, perpetual calendars, annual calendars, uh, moon phases, year calendars, etc., etc. Their catalog is so vast. Let's not forget the 101. Female watches, right? Braces watches. And I can go on for hours. So as you hear, I am um, a fan. Uh, uh, official note, I'm not an AD. I've never been. Always wanted to be one. So I literally perceive the brand as a consumer like our dear listeners. Besides the reversal, there's no watch in their collection today that I would buy. You know, I would have said exactly the same thing until about a year ago. So I have never been a huge JLC fan, but I have always from afar respected and covered the reversal because like you said perfectly with the Royal Oak and Audemars Piguet, it is basically the brand as far as I see it. I don't think I could bring myself to buy another JLC until I had a Reverso in my collection. That would seem like the wrong way to do things. However, and this is a very big however, because it, it somewhat rocked my world unexpectedly. I was in The Hague. That must have been 18 months ago, at least two years ago, when I was with Fratello. And we had in for review a master control annual calendar chronograph i think it was and on pictures even on the website and there's a lot of fancy videos of this watch on the website it looks dull as dishwater it looks like a complete waste of time like, why did they bother oh my god like you know it's just white dial boring blur yeah and it's 12 13,000 or something you think oh god who would ever spend that on that watch Anyway, I rocked up to the office one day and there it was sitting on the side and I thought, oh, you know what? Can I review this for our little trip to Paris that we were going on? And RJ was like, yeah, sure, of course. Take it. Nobody else wants to wear it. And I put it on and I was unimpressed for the first couple of hours. And then the sun caught the dial and I was surprised that there was a little more activity and a little bit more vivaciousness in the face than I first thought. But I didn't think too much of it. I thought it was just a lucky a lucky sun ray that had caught it in its best light. And as the day progressed, I kept finding myself looking at the watch and I kept looking at it and looking at it and looking at it. And I don't just mean because I was there to review it, but because I couldn't tear my eyes away from it because there was something so remarkably precise about the manufacturing, so beautifully restrained about the dial design, so flawlessly executed by all of those dial elements, the hands and the moon disc and the and a, a, a frame of dates uh, just between 12 o'clock and center that I became completely obsessed with it. And I, I couldn't, I, I mean, I, I did give it back, obviously, but I didn't want to. I wanted to buy one there and then. I wanted to keep it on my wrist and just transfer the money and say, this is something special. And I, for a while, and I've kind of gotten over it a little bit now because it was 18 months, two years ago, and I, I've distance is a great healer. But I, I did actually go home and start parceling up my collection to think, how can I, what can I sell to, to get one of these? Because 
to me, actually, it became like a almost a forever watch. I, I don't think it's a watch that would hold its value particularly well. And I don't think it's a watch that you would even find too many people trying to buy off you in even in 10 or 20 or 30 years because of how it comes across initially. But as a watch to wear and to live with and to grow old with, I thought that it was surprisingly strong. So I'm with you. I utterly love that new Master Collection. But with the Chrono, everything is perfect, just not the push. <laughs> Why not stick to the old school mushroom pushes? Why these vertical baton dams, uh, vertical, I don't know what they are. I think they tried to modernize the design. And that design well, doesn't need it. It doesn't need to be modern. No. Well, I don't know if I agree with those with your pusher complaint because my favorite pusher crown setup is on an old 35 millimeter Patek Philippe chronograph where the yeah. crown is enormous. That that looks like a mushroom. It's not actually a mushroom crown, but it's enormous. And then the, the Patek rather oddly has these massive rectangular pushers that are almost as big as the crown. I mean, we're talking a 35 millimeter chronograph, so everything on the outside of the case looks comically large. But that, to me, was actually one of the plus points. I thought it was like a really nice callback to that era. No, it's not Jejal Le Coultre in the old sense of the, 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 the style. And everything is round there. Why do you need to suddenly put these sharp rectangular edges in there? But okay, let's, let's keep it at this. I hope that we've shed a light on why we think that Jejal Le Coultre is amazing. And we wish them to succeed a bit more because they deserve it. But why aren't they succeeding? That's the question, isn't it? Is it because they just can't communicate this? I love the fact that they have a female CEO today. I don't know her personally. I don't think she's there more than a year and you really need time to do a deep dive into a brand, to understand the heritage, the culture and where you want to take it with your vision. Of course, they had Jérôme Lambert for many years there, who's now the group CEO of Richemont. And I think he knows what he does. And I think he did a terrific job with Jeja Le Coultre after, I guess, the, the, the historic magicians of Bloomline and all the Schaffhauser friends and whomever mingled there and the Lange DNA and, you know, the, the triangle between uh, Lange, IWC, and Jeja Le Coultre. Again, three-letter abbreviations. I, I guess lack of visionary strategy. I guess they're a bit all over the place. I think that's it. I think that is it. There isn't unity within their collection or their message. So the quality of the Reverso and the Master Control ties them together. The Polaris is a watch that I would like from another brand, but not from JLC. And I find that odd sometimes that that is actually the case. That's the truth. They should have kept that as a as a neo-retro or neo-vintage. That should have been just like they started with the Polaris by making it a re-edition. And then they took it not one or two notches, but too many notches, too modern modernity. And it's not out there, I guess, for me. I'm speaking on my behalf. Yeah, no, I think I, I think I agree with you. It just sort of sticks out like a really sore thumb in an otherwise pretty easy to understand collection. But they really deserve it. And in their storytelling, I don't know what they're doing. They don't need celebrity endorsement. They don't need marketing. They don't need influences. Their story is their quality, their in-house knowledge. I think they have more than 35 metiers in-house. Let's not forget the enamel case-making, enamel dialing. They have their own diamond uh, setters. Uh, they have a lot of knowledge in-house, which back in the day would put them in the Holy Trinity to circle back to that topic. 
but they've been caught up by other brands, I guess. Okay, we did go on a little bit longer than we'd intended, so I'm going to skip one question, save that for next week, but we have one more question. And it's one I think you'll probably have quite a bit to say about, so I'll pose it to you and then I'll come back with my thoughts as well. The question is, what do you think of the Apple Watches? That's how the question's written. It's from Asher in California, perhaps unsurprisingly, given Apple's general popularity in the region. But he would like to know, what do you think, or what do we think, of Apple Watches? Okay, good question. Also a $1 million question. I think... That Apple is amazing as a brand, as a designer, and a manufacturer. Although they don't produce anything in-house, everything is made in Asia, including their watches. I think whatever they create is new. It's out there, and they create stuff that we didn't know we needed. That being said, me personally, obviously I bought the first one that ever came out because I'm a watch nerd, and I do love digital watches. My love for watchmaking came in 83 with Swatch and G-Shock simultaneously. So I'm that kid that grew up with both analog and digital, although I'm an analog guy. I think if I see time, I see it analogly. I think analog. The first Apple Watch that spoke to me design-wise is the Ultra that just came out. My dad uh, came back from the US, so he picked one up. I love it. I love titanium, so that speaks to me. And it's it has a bit more character. I found the, the, the previous generations, or the regular Apple Watch, too much of a pebble, too polished. It's a bit characterless, and it's not a real watch. That begs, obviously, the next question, what makes a watch a watch, right, design-wise? Um, I love lugs, so I miss the lugs on that watch. Taking it one notch up, in philosophy or analyzing it, I think it's great that connected watches are out there, and especially Apple, because obviously they lead the market for connected watches. And I've said this already earlier in this episode, and I'll leave it at that. They educate the new generations that time belongs on your wrist and not somewhere else, meaning you twist it a wrist to see what time it is. That's a movement that can be lost i mean the danger is if we don't like watches on our wrist anymore or to find time on our wrist the destiny for wrist watches is the same what happened to pocket watches they're doomed to be in drawers and i want to leave it at that nice answer i was later to the party than you when it came to the apple watches i okay didn't buy one until the series 7 came out which i guess was maybe the back end of 2020 no 2021 actually so i, I had it at the start of this year and i i bought it just before i went on a skiing holiday for the first time and i downloaded a load of skiing apps because i thought okay maybe this is exactly the environment in which a guy like me who prefers not just mechanical watches, also quartz watches. I have a Breitling Aerospace, as you know, and several other nice quartz watches. Um, but, you know, real analog watches versus uh, this kind of new tech could use a watch like this for. So I got these apps ready and I used it for the week and I took quite a lot of pleasure in tracking my heart rate and my blood oxygen level, which is something I'd never worried about before in my life, but then became <laughs> weirdly obsessed with. And it was good to see like my top speed and how far I traveled and both figures were deeply unimpressive, but it was still interesting to, to analyze that data after the fact. 
And then maybe about a month later, I gave it to my girlfriend because she had started running and she downloaded the Nike app, which she was using on her phone. And I had this brainwave that she could use my Apple watch, which was a cellular watch instead of her mobile. So she could run with just that and she could ditch the phone. So here's something interesting for would-be purchasers of the Apple watch out there. I didn't do anywhere near enough research when I bought this watch. So I live in Germany, but I have a British phone number because I kept my SIM contract because it was a SIM only contract from three that allowed me unlimited data, which nowadays is not something that phone companies offer, but I need the unlimited data because I travel so much and I need like that endless roaming. So I kept my SIM and I've hung on to my plus four, four number ever since. What I didn't realize is that where you buy an Apple watch makes a difference because each watch is configured to the area in which you purchased it. So my watch, I didn't know that. Well, there you go. There you go. My watch was German. Okay. And it's, it's marked out as one of the cellular models because it has a little red ring on the uh, crown wheel on whichever side it is, which side is it on? Is it the right side of the watch? So you can, are you technically flip it around? Oh, okay. Yeah, well, that's interesting. I didn't know that. So the, the little wheel, the button that you operate the watch with has got a little red line on it. That means it's cellular. So <laughs> in addition to the fact that me with my English phone had bought this watch in Germany and therefore couldn't use the cellular functionality of it at all, only certain networks within those certain areas that the watch is configured to are compatible with the watch. And so I had a look on the UK to see if had I bought the watch in the UK, had I bought the cellular version there, I would have been able to use my three network SIM card with it. The answer is no. So I was completely out in the cold. I'd bought a watch that, you know, for the main reason of buying it was now completely useless because I thought the only reason to have one of these is so I can leave my phone at home and still receive calls when I'm out. Because I would like to be without my phone a little more because I obsessively scroll and look at things and I'm like, Instagram and LinkedIn and Facebook because you know we're of that certain age where Facebook is still relevant. And um, my girlfriend constantly, she's five years younger than me, and she laughs at me like because she thinks that I act like I'm five or ten years older than I am, like with the groups that I'm in on Facebook and whatnot. But that's a story for another day entirely. But I had the watch, I bought it, I tried it. It wasn't for me for several reasons. I made a purchasing error. Please don't make the same mistake. But I've given it to somebody that takes a great deal of pleasure in it. She uses it all the time. It has all of her running data on it. And I think it's a fantastic tool for that reason, but it will never come close to threatening my daily wares. No way. I hope that answers the question. I really enjoyed this episode, Rob. So thank you for that. And thank you for everyone sending in their awesome questions. I actually like this format very much. So I hope we will get way more questions for future episodes. Well, we're stacked up now for a few episodes to run, but we will mix and match the questions as and when they come in. It isn't done on a first-come, first-served basis. We'll try and put together a good range of questions for our Q&A session every week. Remember, if you want to get in touch with us, you can either contact us via Instagram directly. It's either at Rob Nudds, that's R-O-B-N-U-D-D-S, or at Alon Ben Joseph, that's A-L-O-N-B-E-N-J-O-S-E-P-H. Or contact us at our email addresses for therealtime.show, and that is rob at therealtime.show or alon at therealtime.show, and ask us anything and everything you want. We want to know what you want to know about watchmaking, so hit us up, and we'll see you next time. Bye.